Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hi, hi, Sassy Speculumites. Welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian, and today we're diving into the second part of what naturopathic medicine is. Last episode, I talked about the history of naturopathic medicine, what it is and isn't, and how we as naturopaths look at you and your symptoms and how we treat. Of course, now you know that there is not an algorithm for treating every single patient, as every single patient is different. So today I'm going to talk about all of the ways that we can treat you and your body, from herbs to chiropractics to hydrotherapy and everywhere in between. We've got a large toolbox of modalities to heal the human body, but before we get to that, we've got some housekeeping things to get out of the way first. First things first, if you are a regular listener and haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, please do so. As I mentioned in the last episode, if you rate or review and then send me a message letting me know that you did it, I will send you free swag. And if you've already done the rate and review process and you're like, wait, I did the thing long ago when I was supposed to, and what, now I don't get free swag? I will obviously send you swag as well. So send me a message letting me know and I will get that swag in the mail right away. And if you don't get the gist, please rate and review the podcast when you can. Thank you. Second... I'm trying to get my social media poppin', but those algorithms are hard to beat. I know that there are so many of you out there because I can see how many listeners I have, but please take the time to go to Instagram and search Sassy Speculum and follow me. I promise to bring you cool content regularly. This is also a great way to get a hold of me if you have questions, concerns, or topic ideas, or more. Um, Really anything else. I respond to messages pretty fast, so I promise to not leave you hanging. There's also some fun and exciting things on the horizon for Sassy Speculum. I have some collaborations coming up that I'm more than excited about. First, coming up next episode, is a collaboration with Modern Living Kitchen. This is a small local Portland business that grows their own delicious and nutrient-dense microgreens and delivers them straight to your home if you live in the Portland area. They are a non-GMO and pesticide-free indoor vertical farm who has the vision to break down food deserts and spread their nutrient-dense greens to communities most in need while empowering and educating individuals about nutrition and health. All of which fits really well into my own philosophy, which is why Sol, one of the founders, is going to be coming onto the show to talk about the benefits of microgreens and their correlation to women's health. And of course, we're going to do a little tasting because I'm never one to turn down free food. So get excited about that. It's coming up in two weeks time. I'm also working with a cervical cancer awareness company who is going to come chat with me in April, which is so much sooner than it feels. Does anyone else feel like this year is going like crazy fast? I cannot believe it's already March. In my mind, it's still November, weirdly, but anyways, Long story short, there are some fun collabs coming soon. I'm working with some other businesses and whatnot as well to bring you all the most excitingly educational stuff that I can come up with. I just can't quite talk about those collabs yet as we're still working out the details. So stay tuned and there will be much more to come. If you have a business and you're interested in doing a collaboration, I would love to connect and see if we could work well together. Send me a message. As always, I can be reached at sassyspeculum at gmail.com or on social media at sassyspeculum. Or you can always reach out to me anonymously if you'd prefer on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum, which I'm actually considering changing the domain name of because 
I haven't doula in a while, and I'm not planning on doing it anytime soon, and I'm doing this a heck of a lot more than I am doing that, so I should probably update it to something a little bit more prevalent, um, but if that happens, you guys will be the first to know. As always, and especially with the nature of this particular episode, nothing I say here or anywhere else should be taken as medical advice. I am a medical student, and you should always, always, always consult with your licensed physician before making any changes to your care. So let's dive on in. Last episode, I briefly touched on the modalities of naturopathic medicine, but today I'm going to talk about each individual one, the history of it, the science behind it, what they can and can't be used for, and more. I'm going to start off with one of the most obvious naturopathic modalities, botanicals. Please know that the order in which I'm talking about these has nothing to do with how quickly we reach for them as therapeutic tools. Just because I'm talking about botanicals and herbs first doesn't mean that I prefer using botanicals over everything else. It's just one that we're most well known for using, so I thought I'd start with it. Since the earliest days, long before white coats and clinical laboratories to create pharmaceuticals, there were medicine people who used whatever they had to heal those in their communities. In those days, they had what the earth gave them and what they could produce with their own bodies, like prayer song and things like sweat lodges. Over in ancient China, women dug into the earth and found the Dong Kwai root and discovered that it soothed menstrual pains and could be used topically for anti-aging creams. In Europe, women found St. John's wort plant and that this could be used to heal wounds and aid in depression, while lavender, on the other hand, could relieve stress. Both flowers were also ground up and turned into cosmetics. Here in North America, Native American women were drinking black cohosh tea to ease menopause, and in ancient Greece, women were regulating their menstrual cycles with wine-soaked chaseberry leaves. Humans have been using plant medicine for so much longer than they've been using pharmaceuticals, and if there's anything that I want to get across with this episode and last episode, it's that medicines that are not effective don't stick around in society for thousands and thousands of years. All of these herbs I can tell you I've learned about in med school to be effective in all of those ailments and many others. Scientific proof is as much about lab research as it is about anecdotal evidence. I encourage you to go into your bathroom right now and look at the back of your shampoo bottle or your body wash. I just did the same and randomly sampled two shampoos, a conditioner, and a body wash, all of which are common brands full of your typical chemicals and none of which are hippie shit, and I see juniper fruit oil, rosemary leaf, lots of different coconut products, corn silk, apricot seed oil, aloe vera extract, and peach leaf extract. All of those are further proof that our modern day society knows that botanicals are beneficial to the body, at least topically in this case. Herbs just don't fit into the big pharma agenda, so over the years they have been squandered and shat upon in order to fill the pockets of the wealthy. In fact, 30 to 40% of our pharmaceutical options are derived from plants or developed from the effects certain plants had on our body, and that number is even higher for over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. For example, if you've ever been to an eye doctor when they dilate your eyes, this is done with atropine, a substance from foxglove flowers. Foxglove was also used to create the congestive heart failure drug, oh, I always say this wrong, digoxin, digoxin, I never know which one it is. It's an antiarrhythmic drug, meaning that it doesn't let your heart beat abnormally and is used for blood pressure support. It's also really, really toxic, so please don't just go out and start eating foxglove just because you have an arrhythmia. 
aspirin also comes from the white willow plant as well as meadowsweet and wintergreen. All of these plants have something called salicates in them, which are helpful in pain reduction and may sound familiar because aspirin, as well as many topical acne creams, are made of salicylic acid, all plant-derived. Listerine has thymol in it, a combination of thyme and bergamot used as an antiseptic, and many arthritis creams also have capsaicin within them as well as an anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. That literally tells the body to release painkillers, naturally. So, plant medicines are everywhere in our modern medical world, and dismissing herbal remedies as a crock of hippie BS really just makes you look kind of dumb, because I guarantee every single person who's ever talked poorly about herbs has also taken aspirin or used mouthwash at some point in their life. On the flip side of my argument, if we have so many pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter medications out there that are plant-based and almost a million active physicians in America who can prescribe said medications, why even use herbal remedies? Well, for one, people want options that are less expensive and cause fewer side effects. The pharmaceuticals that are taken from plant origins have tons of additives and dyes inside of them, and taking a plant instead gets rid of all of those dyes and additives, and that's because the plant is just a plant. It's taken from the source, and it's exactly what it says it is. Secondly, Herbs have the unique ability to support our vital life force. Instead of slapping a band-aid on menstrual cramps by taking Advil, taking an herb can tonify, restore, and enhance our bodies to prevent cramps from happening in the first place. They're better at addressing the root cause and bringing a little oomph into your system that needs support. Your body knows how to use the constituents of plants because human beings evolved using plants as both medicine and food. That being said, plants can have many actions due to their many constituents. Just like pharmaceuticals have many chemicals within, they can have actions on different parts of the body, even ones that we don't want them to work on. For example, Adderall, a drug taken for ADHD that increases the ability to pay attention, stay focused, and control behavioral problems, all great things for someone who struggles with those problems. Adderall also is an appetite suppressant, meaning it decreases the cues your body usually gives you when it needs food. People with ADHD who aren't on medication still will often forget to eat due to the nature of the disorder. An appetite suppressant is going to make that so much worse, and some people will suffer greatly from that, and most people who suffer from that aren't able to take Adderall. Does that mean that they don't have any other options? Of course not! Plants also have many constituents that work on different aspects of the body. For example here, fennel seeds are an amazing herb for digestive distress. They stimulate the the secretion of digestive juices and enzymes that improve your digestion overall. It's also an antispasmodic and an anti-inflammatory and can encourage a decrease in constipation, indigestion, and bloating. All amazing things for someone struggling with GI troubles. Fennel seed is also used by nursing mothers to encourage breast milk production. Does this mean that if you're just a regular dude with tummy problems and you take fennel seeds, will you start lactating? No, of course not. That's the thing about herbs. Your body has evolved with plant medicine. It knows how to take what it needs and leave what it doesn't. It's pretty cool if you ask me. We often will also choose an herb that fits the person in many different ways. Everyone who comes into the clinic with insomnia isn't going to get the same herb. 
because it depends on how that insomnia presents and how it affects you. If you're getting a pharmaceutical, pretty much everyone's going to get Ambien. So let's say you're an insomniac due to chronic racing thoughts and the inability to shut your mind off. And you also have a really energy depleting job that you feel sucks the life out of you every day. If I'm your doctor, I'm going to choose an herb that can help with both of those things. Not just one that fixes the insomnia because you're a whole person and should be viewed as such and how you feel after your job is going to affect your sleep. A really big benefit of herbal medicine is that many amazing herbs can be found as near as your backyard. Once again, none of this is medical advice and please speak to a licensed individual before bringing any of these plants into your life. But for example, dandelion, those pesky weeds that fill up everyone's yard in the next coming months. The leaves can be used for water retention, digestive problems, constipation, and liver health. Many years ago, my boyfriend and I walked around our neighborhood sneaking onto people's lawns in a very non-sneaky way because I don't know how to be sneaky. And we collected dandelion flower heads so that I could turn them into an oil as dandelion flower oil is specific for healing back pain, which my partner struggles with daily. Nettles are another really common weed that are so nutrient dense, it's insane. Actually, all parts of the nettle plant are used for different disorders and ailments. From a woman's health lens, nettle is often prescribed to replenish iron stores lost during menstruation or childbirth. It can also be used to stop heavy menstrual bleeding as it's an astringent herb, which means that it causes contraction of the tissues, de causing a decrease in fluid flow. I personally use it every year to help with my springtime allergies, which all of my organ listeners know how bad allergy season is here, and it's one of the only things that has actually worked for me. Fresh nettle plants do release irritating chemicals when touched, so make sure to always handle them with gloves on if you find the plant near a backyard or in nature. Until the beginning of the 20th century, plant medicines were human medicines, and it was the primary system of healing within the United States. If you ever remember your grandma rubbing mustard plaster on your chest to clear out congestion, or the suggestion of putting onions in your socks to reduce a fever, these are all traditionalist herbal remedies and concoctions that have a very strong history of anecdotal evidence passed on from generation to generation. And now, we are getting more and more research for herbal medicines, with researchers learning exactly the mechanisms by which herbs work from labs in Europe, Russia, India, Japan, China, and the US. For example, aloe gel has been used for a bajillion years for burns and cuts. Many of our sunburn cooling relief gels are made with aloe, but recent studies have shown that the gel is able to penetrate into damaged tissues and it promotes healing by increasing blood flow and relieving pain and inflammation. We always knew that it could do it, but we just didn't know how it did it. Or for example, uva ursi, which is a shrub with bright berries, known for thousands of years to be extremely effective in bladder infections. Turns out it contains two substances called arbutin and methyl arbutin that when ingested orally, they undergo chemical changes during digestion and form into new substances that kill or inhibit bacteria within the urinary tract. While botanical studies are definitely becoming more easily funded than they ever were before, becoming equivalent to pharmaceutical trial funding is far off. It's a far off dream. I have a friend um, in school with me right now who, on top of getting his ND degree, he's also getting a master's in integrative medicine research. 
And he recently submitted a research study that he worked on to a medical journal for publication. And he got a response along the lines of, thanks, but we only publish real medicine, which was absolutely mind-boggling to me that people in research are still not recognizing the benefits of what naturopathic medicine has to offer, even though they can see it firsthand. Herbs are definitely not always the best option, and hopefully y'all know that I would never say something like that. There is always a time and place for pharmaceuticals, botanicals, and all of our other therapeutic modalities. But when herbs are the right choice for a problem, they work just as effectively as, as drugs with fewer side effects and more benefits. Let's move on to the next modality, homeopathy, which has been one of my passions in school. It's definitely the modality that I've studied the most, and I'm the most comfortable prescribing it. Homeopathy is a little bit like cilantro. People either fully favor it, or they're super skeptical, or even staunchly opposed to it. There's really no middle ground, and no matter which camp someone fits into, no one can really define it very well. It's very hard to define. For some, homeopathy is the treatment of pain with pain. For others, it's a form of herbal medicine. My boyfriend likes to say that it's feeding people poisons. For the greatest skeptics, it's an absolute hoax, and it's just sugar pills for a placebo effect. But the actual definition of homeopathy is a therapeutic method which clinically applies the law of similars and which uses medicinal substances in weak or infinitesimal doses. The law of similars comes from Hippocrates himself, who wrote the strangery which is not cures the strangery which is, or in normal person language, the same thing which causes the disease cures it. For example, white hellebore, a beautiful shrub flower that I actually have sitting on my counter right now, um, but this plant produces cholera-like diarrhea when ingested. But it was also used in the 19th century to treat cholera. Rewinding to the 18th century, German physician, chemist, and toxologist Samuel Hahnemann further studied Hippocrates' law of similars. He studied the plant cinchona, which at that time was being used to treat certain types of malarial fever. He began experimenting on himself and his family and friends around him. Not something I would ever recommend, but he experimented with cinchona, aconite, belladonna, ipecac, mercury, and more to better familiarize himself with the pharmacodynamic action of these substances when given to healthy people. Many of those substances are super poisonous, like belladonna, which has a long twisted history of being used to poison enemies, and both Roman emperors Claudius and Augustus were poisoned with belladonna by their wives. It's likely even the poison that Romeo and Juliet ingested at the end of their story. Anyways, Hahnemann was able to determine what these poisons did to healthy people, and then tried them on sick patients who displayed symptoms similar to those induced in the healthy people. He observed that his and Hippocrates' hypothesis was correct, but only when in very weak and infinitesimal doses. If you are stung by a bee, or otherwise administered bee venom in whatever way, it causes a sudden onset of swelling, burning, stinging, and the skin will turn red. All of this will probably be relieved by cold water. When given bee venom in an infinitesimal dose, it improves and cures stinging, burning eruptions of sudden onset, which are relieved by cold compresses, but which come on from another origin other than a bee, like from sunstroke or allergic hives. 
Because Hahnemann was able to prove his hypothesis, it became a law of nature that can be divided into three parts. One, all pharmacologically active substances will cause specific symptoms that are characteristic to the substance when said substance is given to a healthy person. Like, for example, if you give a healthy person Adderall, they will respond to it in a manner associated with the substance. Like, they'll have the appetite suppression, increased focus, whatnot. Number two, all sick people display a specific set of morbid symptoms, which are characteristic of their disease. These symptoms will change the way that the patient usually feels or behaves. For example, when you have the flu, you might stay in bed and crave soups and have a bursting headache, when you're usually an energetic, busy person who craves meat and never gets headaches. Number three, the cure can be obtained by giving a substance in a weak dose whose experimental symptoms in healthy people are similar to those symptoms displayed by the ill patient. An example would be digitalis. I spoke about this herb earlier when I was talking about botanicals. Digitalis is the extremely poisonous but beautiful foxglove flower, and when ingested on its own, it would cause a rapid, irregular heartbeat. Digitalis as an herb, or digoxin, 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 as a pharmaceutical is given for heart arrhythmias from atrial fibrillation, which causes the heart to contract irregularly and quickly, like cures like. But homeopathy doesn't stop there. Not only does one prescribe based on the disease, but one prescribes also with how the patient is reacting to the disease, making it an individualized prescription. For example, two patients come into my office separately with left-sided headaches. The first patient's headache is over their left eye and it extends to the back of their head. They feel dull and heavy pains that are worse with the slightest motion and better with pressure and also better laying in the dark or from exercise. This reaction to a headache is very similar to that of a healthy individual undergoing the toxicological action of bryonia, a vining plant. The second patient's headache is also on the left side, but only on their forehead, and it feels really congestive. It has a bursting sensation, almost like the brain was gonna burst out of the skull. It's worse when they wake up, before their menses, and with heat but better with pressure, cold air, or applications of cold. Also better during the menstrual period. This patient's reaction is totally different from the first, but they're both still left-sided headaches. This reaction corresponds to that of a healthy individual undergoing the toxicological action of lachesis, a poisonous snake venom. Homeopathy treats on both levels. This is exactly what makes homeopathics difficult to study, because if you were to give both patients bryonia, the second patient would have no benefit from the medicine. Homeopathics treat people. They don't treat diseases. That's not saying that homeopathics haven't been studied. They've studied individualized homeopathics for mild traumatic brain injuries, fibromyalgia, and childhood diarrhea, just to name a few. Arnica has also been extensively researched for its effect on physical traumas, like bruises and broken bones. There are also two different ways to prescribe homeopathics. It can be done either acutely or constitutionally. The example I just gave of the headaches would be an acute prescription. A patient comes to you and says, hey, I have these headaches, and this is what they feel like. You can prescribe just based on that information. 
Or if you have the ability to take the whole case or already know a lot more about the patient, including other health problems that they have, they can be physical, mental, or emotional complications, as well as if you really understand how they operate as a person, how they get mad, if they cry a lot, or need a lot of consolation, what kind of foods and drinks they crave or despise, if they're fast or slow, etc., etc. For a constitutional example, I will use myself. I am a phosphorus. The best way to imagine this remedy is like the bubbles in a glass of champagne. A person who constitutionally needs this remedy will be bubbly and outgoing and will seem to sparkle with intelligence, creativity, and enthusiasm. Which, you know, obviously, I'm a damn sparkly person. However, they never seem to have strong boundaries between themselves and others. They're ungrounded and uncentered. We can be flighty because they get, they get so excited about one project and then easily forget and move on to another. We definitely pay the price for these poor boundaries, as initially they can cause great anxiety and fears, and eventually leads to immense collapse. Major anxieties come from being alone, with fears symbolic of a lack of boundaries, like the dark, deep water, death, the future, etc. On a mental-emotional level, that explains me pretty much to a T, um, I have absolutely no boundaries and also put others' needs way above my own to my therapist's chagrin. Um, y'all already know that I'm a very anxious person all of the time. And when I collapse, I collapse. I am not a good sick person to be around. But if you leave me alone, especially while I'm sick, I will lose my shit. Um, on a physical plane, phosphorus people will bleed bright red blood when they bleed, and they bleed very easily. Just ask my friends how many times I've had to sprint out of a classroom because my nose randomly sprang a leak. It was so bad in high school that I actually had to get my nose cauterized, but unfortunately those blood vessels grew back, and I get nosebleeds probably like once a month now. Better than before the surgery, but still it's not great to randomly have blood gush out of your nose. Um... Other phosphory things, um, a ravenous appetite, especially for chocolate, cold food, salty and spicy food, and cheese. All of those are my favorite foods. Um, like, it gets to kind of a spooky place when you can open a book and read all about yourself. Um, I also have tremendous thirst, and I'm very easily dehydrated. I have a history of ovarian cysts, recurring respiratory infections, numbness in my fingers, back pain that is better with motion and massage and heat. I talk in my sleep, and also I'm greatly refreshed by sleep. I love sleep, etc., etc. Those are just some of the symptoms of a phosphorus that I personally align with. There's five pages in the book that I'm looking at with the symptoms, disorders, behaviors, and overall constitution of a phosphorus person that explain me as a person and the way that I live my life. And when I'm recognizing that I'm starting to feel kind of crappy every day, whether that's emotional or physical crappiness, I take a high potency of phosphorus homeopathic, and the next day I'm back to being a sparkly human being. It's honestly super cool. I've taken homeopathic cases on many of my friends and family, and it's amazing to see people come out of years of slumps because I found the right remedy for them, and it can also help you to prevent future diseases or problems. Like, for example, I have a friend who gets sick every time that they travel. After taking their case, I learned that this was because their body and mind just don't adjust well to changes. So she takes a dose of this remedy before she leaves for trips, and guess what? No more sickness. Now, if you're like, okay, what the hell is she talking about? And I've totally lost you. 
You're like, how the heck can little pills full of poison venom and rocks from the periodic table of elements not only match your constitution, but also heal you? Take this analogy. Just like a cell phone battery, your cells need energy to do their jobs, including repair damaged tissues or organs. The more stressed out, sick, or aged the body is, the more energy cells need. But the cells can't always find that energy. The remedy that matches your constitution works on a cellular level, and it's able to give a little zap to the cells to give them the energy that they need to repair the tissues. And if you're still skeptical, come see me and I'll take your case and I'll prove it. (laughs) Proof is in the pudding, babe. And while it's hard to research in a lab or randomized control trial or whatever, 5,000 years of clinical evidence is research. And it's honestly better and holds more proof than anything else. The next kind of treatment we give is a bit of a combination of herbs and homeopathics as well as other stuff called nutraceuticals or supplements. You can have both herbs and homeopathics within a supplement, but this can also be vitamins and minerals and amino acids, glandulars, mushrooms, probiotics, and the like. These are what you find in the vitamin aisle when you're at the grocery store. One thing that really irks me about this aisle is that literally anyone can purchase literally anything in this aisle without any education of what they're putting into their body. Just because it's a vitamin does not mean that it's good for you or right for you. One of my favorite patients ever came to me for the first time with a whole page of supplements that she had self-prescribed after reading blogs on the internet. After running labs, we found out that she had put herself into a hypothyroid state and had whacked up her lipids and sex hormones. We took her off all of her supplements, except like three, and all of her labs normalized. This poor woman was worsening all of her symptoms, spending hundreds of dollars every month, and causing damage to her body unnecessarily. Supplements are extremely powerful tools that can have a significant effect on the body. That's why we use them as medicine. Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox, except now that I think about it, my podcast in general is a soapbox, so whatever, you're here anyways. (laughs) Um, One of my favorite types of supplements are glandulars. These come from the hormone-producing glands of animals, usually cows, sheep, or pigs, They contain dried and ground up raw animal glandular tissues or extracts of those tissues. These are used for glandular and hormonal support without having to use synthetic hormones. They can come from the thyroid, thymus, adrenals, pituitary, ovaries, testes, and pancreas. And in addition to correcting hormonal imbalances, they can also enhance immune function, treat allergies, and combat inflammation. But just because they have these abilities, please only take them if you've been prescribed them. If you think you have a hormonal imbalance, this is not something that you should ever try and manage on your own. And please speak to your doctor about your symptoms because we know how to best support you and hormones are not something that you mess with. I'm just sharing these with you because they're super cool. Last year, I was prescribed an adrenal glandular and the first time I took it, I felt like I was on Adderall. I could actually focus on my work. I had energy and I didn't feel like I was slogging through the world anymore. It was really, really cool. Amino acids are another supplement that we prescribe fairly often. Amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. There are nine essential amino acids that the body cannot make on its own, and they must come from food or supplementation. And then there's 11 non-essential amino acids. Not saying that they're not essential, but our body can just make them on its own, so it isn't essential that we ingest them through food. 
Amino acids also help us to break down food, grow, repair body tissues, and perform tons of other bodily functions. Some pros of amino acids are that they fight fatigue. This is because when we exercise, we consume bodily resources in order to provide the energy output required for the exercising task at hand. Amino acids not only help the fat consumption process, but they also fight off the effects of fatigue so that you can exercise for longer. They can also help build better immunity as the amino acids repair muscle damage and strains from exercising. The immune system gets a natural little boost as well. They help with glucose control. They don't improve insulin resistance, but they do improve how the body regulates blood sugar levels, leading to more consistent energy. Amino acids can provide specific results when targeted correctly. One with high blood pressure might be prescribed a dose of L-arginine to bring that down, or someone with herpes might be given L-lysine to prevent breakouts, or those with chronic diarrhea might be given L-glutamine for more formed poops. And just like everything else I've talked about today, amino acids are super potent. I take one called N-acetylcysteine for my endometriosis, and last month I ran out, and I just didn't get more for like one or two weeks because I was like, eh taking enough other things for the endo that I, it shouldn't be too big of a deal if I just skip this one for a couple weeks. And boy, was I wrong. I had one of those super bad periods, like what I used to have as a kid. So that shit is potent AF. N-acetylcysteine is actually a really cool one. It's a really potent antioxidant, making it essential for immune health and to fight off cellular damage. It reduces the effects of environmental toxins through pathways of detoxification, And it has been studied clinically for mental health disorders like bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD, substance use behavior, and binge eating. It also has been studied for respiratory conditions like COPD, asthma, cystic fibrosis, and pulmonary fibrosis, and even sinus congestion and allergies. I remember in the heights of COVID, it was pretty much impossible to get because everybody wanted it. It can also improve brain health as well as fertility in both men and women, and it reduces heart disease risk. It's an awesomely versatile little bugger. Speaking of amino acids and overall immune boosts, another therapeutic option we as naturopaths rely on is IV therapy. Now, I'm not talking about those sham places who charge you $450 to get saline pumped into you and an extra $45 if you want to add in B12. Like, yes, those are technically IV therapies, but they're not usually tailored to you by a doctor who knows what they're doing. As naturopaths, we have specific training in formulating IV nutrient combinations. I've been on two IV shifts at school, and they're some of my favorites because you get to see results in real time. You can even see patients get better before they even leave the chair. IV therapy involves administering minerals, vitamins, amino acids, sodium bicarbonate, and more through a vein, making the nutrients go directly into your bloodstream, therefore bypassing the digestive tract so that they're better absorbed. Many people with digestive complaints can have difficulty absorbing nutrients through their GI tract, so getting them directly into the bloodstream can make that a more effective process. How we do it is we meet with you to understand what your symptoms are and if you'd be a good candidate for IV. Then we create a formula specifically for your symptoms to best benefit you. Then we insert a tiny tube into your arm that carries the nutrients into your body. There's only a needle involved for a couple of seconds, but the tube does stay in your body for the duration of the treatment. However, you won't feel it and it shouldn't bother you or be painful. 
IV therapies can be used to improve immune system function, improve detoxification pathways, ease acute and chronic stress, aid in the treatment of many different disorders like POTS, Parkinson's, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, chronic viral issues, and autoimmune diseases, dehydration, and even cure hangovers. They can be used to promote athletic performance and recovery. And because you're skipping over the GI tract, many vitamins and minerals can be given in a higher dose without the nasty side effects that would occur if you were to ingest the same dosage in pill form. For example, in high doses, vitamin C would cause significant diarrhea when given orally. But when given through an IV, it has amazing effects because it skips over the GI tract. High-dose vitamin C has been researched and proven to kill many types of cancer cells while being harmless to healthy cells, making it a safe and non-toxic and well-researched combination treatment to be used with conventional cancer treatments. I actually am in the process of getting a paper published that I wrote on the effects of high-dose vitamin C on Epstein-Barr-related hepatitis. High-dose vitamin C has been studied for the treatment of chronic Epstein-Barr, but never before had it been tried for Epstein-Barr hepatitis which is a rare complication of chronic EBV infection. But I had the pleasure of getting to treat a woman with it, and with a few months of treatment, she was right as rain. It is my understanding, and anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but MDs and DOs have to get certified outside of school in order to specialize in IV infusions. From looking at school curriculums, it looks like you only get infusion experience if you take anesthesiology electives, Obviously, MDs and DOs are taught how to place and remove IVs and what goes in and out of an IV, but it appears that they don't get the actual education on formulating and whatnot. In naturopathic school, we get certified our third year of school, and we also have an IV section on our boards, so we have a bit more hands-on experience than other physician providers. Let's move on from more medicines that go inside of the body to those on the outside, our physical medicine treatments. As a part of our curriculum, we learn chiropractics and soft tissue manipulations, so we can technically snap, crackle, and pop your body. However, just like homeopathy and IV therapy, you need to become proficient in your skills, and I can tell you that physical medicine is not my jam, so it's very unlikely that I will be cracking in my practice. Because we have so many different modalities to work with as naturopaths, it's better if you really pick and choose what you want to become prolific in and what you're happy referring out for. If you try and do everything, you'll only do everything half-assed. If you choose two to three things to really focus on and become an expert in, then you'll be an expert. So since physical medicine isn't really my thing that I picked to succeed in, I don't have much to blab about it, but I have friends who absolutely love physical medicine, and I would be happy to have them on the show if you're interested in learning more about what they can do. You can also take electives to become certified in massage. I did plan to do this early on in school and then decided against it. We do learn soft tissue work, so I'm comfortable doing things, but I'm definitely not certified in massage work. We all know the benefits of massage and chiropractic, so I don't think I really need to go too in-depth here. The main thing that really gets my goat about chiropractors is that their goal is to move the bones into the correct alignment. But you need other structural work and strengthening to teach the muscles to hold the bones into that correct position. Imagine a bowl with a spoon in it. The spoon is going to lean against the rim wherever you placed it when you were done eating. Now, if you were to pick up that spoon and hold it upright in the bowl, it's only going to stand upright while you're holding it. 
The moment you let go, it'll come crashing back down to the rim due to gravity. Well, your bones are the same, except gravity has less to do with it. If your chiropractor cracks your neck and realigns your spine, it will probably stay in that position for a couple of hours, days. But pretty soon your body, who is a creature of habit, will go back to the way that it was due to weak or tight muscles. If the left side of your neck is super tight and the right side of your neck is weak, your spine is going to succumb to that and align itself so that it has the path of least resistance between those weak and tight muscles. So with chiropractics, you need to not only do the cracking, but also need to do the muscle training with a physical therapist or a chiropractor who focuses on soft tissue work. There are definitely chiros out there who are all just like, pop, 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 come back at the end of the week and we'll do it again. And then you spend hundreds of dollars getting pop, pop, popped into and out of place. And I've seen those chiropractors, so I know that they exist. Some naturopaths are also double trained in acupuncture through a dual classical Chinese medicine degree, which we have at my school. So some naturopaths can provide acupuncture and a Chinese medicine lens to their treatments as well. I unfortunately cannot speak too much about classical Chinese medicine because I did not choose that degree route and it's one of those things where you need to know what you're talking about to talk about it and I just don't, so I don't want to spread false information. I am, however, really interested in pulse diagnostics, which is a tenant of Chinese medicine, so maybe one day I can speak a little bit more on that if anyone's interested. On the acupuncture side, I can speak a little bit more about this. It can be truly beneficial for pretty much any complaint, from depression to painful periods to infertility. It's a pretty versatile tool that was first mentioned in documents a few hundred years leading up to the Common Era. They found sharpened stones and bones from 6000 BC that they believed were used as acupuncture tools. And while acupuncture was believed to have been founded in China, there was a mummy found in the Italian Alps after a glacier melted who had died in 3300 BC with 61 different tattoos, which are believed to have been therapeutic markings. Each group of his tattoos were a set of horizontal or vertical lines that were clustered over areas where the man was suffering from joint and spinal degeneration, and therefore were potentially demarcating the locations for acupuncture treatments or the tattoos themselves were the treatments. Iceman's theories could be entirely wrong, but there has been quite a bit of research on his body and his weird tats, and there's the possibility that needle therapeutics developed quite independently from acupuncture in China. Lastly of the physical medicines is what's called hydrotherapy. The philosophy of hydrotherapy is that health and therefore healing is proportional to normal flow of healthy blood. So hydrotherapy, in essence, is used to increase circulation, increase the number of white blood and red blood cells in circulation, and decrease congestion of blood and lymph by increasing the flow and activity of blood and lymphatic cells. It also improves the quality of blood by improving digestion and nutrient absorption and overall strengthening of the organs of elimination like the skin, liver, kidneys, bowels, lungs, and lymph. Water is one of the most vital elements in our lives as most of our bodies are water. Our blood is 94% when fully hydrated and water is essential in the transport of, of ions across cell membranes. When the body is dehydrated, those cells lose energy and the body has to get more of its energy from food sources, which overall takes more energy to do. While our blood is 94% water, 
making it one thirteenth of our body's weight. Our lymph is one fourth to one third of our body's weight and is vital in its function to maintain fluid balance within the body and as part of the immune system. Since hydrotherapy is a powerful mover of lymph, it's an incredibly important basic health maintenance concept. If you're not moving lymph or blood well throughout your body, this causes congestion and stagnation, which can severely hinder all bodily processes. So with hydrotherapy, you're applying water to a certain part of the body as the effects of water are mediated through the skin, which in turn affects the nervous system, which then affects the circulation. But it's more than just applying water. The timing of the application and the temperature all matter. Hydrotherapy is often a sequence of hot and cold applications. When applied for a short amount of time, cold causes vasoconstriction, meaning it causes the blood vessels to constrict. The longer a cold application is present will then cause vasodilation, letting the blood vessels and surrounding tissues relax, and then eventually it causes another constriction. Short application of heat also causes that initial vasoconstriction, leading to vasodilation, and then vasostasis, meaning there is no blood flow. I'm sure we all know what happens when you immerse yourself in cold water. Immediately, your heart rate and breathing rate slows down, circulation slows, your muscles become clumsy, your tactile senses are blunted, and even digestion slows down. Direct effects of heat are the exact opposite. Increased heart rate and breathing rate, muscles quicken and increase activity, digestion is quickened, and tactile sensations are perceived more quickly and accurately. The hydrotherapy alternates hot and cold in order to create a pumping effect in the peripheral cardiovascular system. Because the circulatory system is a closed system, affecting one part of the system will always have an effect on the other. So changing heart rate, for example, will always have an effect on the blood flow in your arms and legs. The body recognizes the cold as a depressing agent and therefore will initially react to prevent its effects or counterbalance the effects of the cold. So a short application of cold is actually stimulative to the body, and a longer cold is depressive, causing all of the symptoms I mentioned before. Short applications of hot are also stimulative, and a longer application is depressive. The short applications of both hot and cold increase oxygen absorption, CO2 excretion, nitrogen absorption and excretion, tissue tone, and short cold can decrease blood glucose also, which is helpful in diabetics and people with blood sugar issues. One can use hydrotherapy for a myriad of conditions. There, there are at-home treatments that can be done and ones that are also easier in a clinical setting. For example, a common migraine treatment is to place the feet in a bucket of hot water and a cold washcloth on the forehead. This is using the mechanism of derivation to draw blood and lymph away from the head and into the feet. One of my favorite at-home treatments that literally everyone hates doing, and it sounds absolutely miserable, but it's really not that bad, and it's incredibly effective. It's the wet sock treatment. This treatment can actually be done anywhere on the body. I've done it with a t-shirt or a throat compress as well for added benefit. This treatment is what's called a heating compress. It's actually a cold compress applied to the body, which will then become warmed through the heat of the body. So with wet socks, you put on cold cotton socks and then layer over with a pair of thick wool socks and then you go to bed and by morning time, the socks will be completely dry. This can be done in times when you need a little bit of an immune boost. You find yourself feeling like you're coming down with something, pop some socks on and see what happens. 
When I did the t-shirt version, I was really sick with a chest cold and just needed to nip it in the bud because being sick while in school is the worst. This can also be done over the abdomen for constipation, diarrhea, back pain, poor digestion, Crohn's, or UC. And throat compresses can be done for a sore throat, tonsillitis, or laryngitis as well. You can also alternate hot and cold on musculoskeletal injuries. When I broke my foot in 2020, which is a funny story for another time, I alternated hot and cold water baths just on my foot every day, and it helped my healing immensely. Hydrotherapy is like really old school naturopathic medicine, healing the body by supporting its natural processes from the inside out. Really prolific medicine, but in our world, it can also be really difficult for people to find the time and the energy as well. There are some treatments that should be done in an office as they're supposed to be relaxing and you should not be up and having to get water and put it on your body and whatnot. And you should just be able to lay there without having to do the whole shebang. These do take a fair amount of time, but they're also kind of like a spa day. You get to lay down and be pampered. So I highly recommend these treatments if you can find an ND around town who does hydrotherapy treatments. You know, in Portland, Northwest Integrative Medicine and Grain Medicine both do hydro. I'm sure there's a bunch more, but that's what I know off of the top of my head. Now that we've covered all the things that you can do to the body to enhance its functioning and overall benefit of health, let's talk about the things that you can do with the body to improve its overall function and better health. There are two different ways to determine health. There's the inborn aspect. This includes genetics and maternal influence. And then there's the lifestyle aspect. This is the classic nature versus nurture argument. The lifestyle aspect includes stress, diet, exercise, sleep, relationship with nature, psychological, emotional, spiritual, and socioeconomic, and these are the things that I'm going to talk about now. All of these things impact your health in one way or another or a million ways. Some of the chronic diseases that are lifestyle-induced are heart diseases, strokes, diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, anxiety and depression, and some cancers. In the last episode, I talked about the pyramid of therapeutic order that moves from the least invasive treatments to the most invasive. While I, of course, started with the most invasive treatments like botanicals, supplements, chiropractics, and IV therapy, and I've been working my way down the pyramid with homeopathics, massage, acupuncture, and hydrotherapy, and now, finally, I'm at the last and bottom level to reestablish the foundations of health and remove obstacles to cure. And these are the things that I'm going to be talking about last, but certainly not least. In fact, these things should often be the first step toward healing in many cases. I'm going to start off with nutrition. As I mentioned in the last episode, nutrition is the number one most researched health field ever in the world. And yet when chronic diseases and perpetual illnesses plague people, nutrition is very rarely looked at. But that old adage, you are what you eat, is true. You're also what you digest, absorb, metabolize, detoxify, and eliminate. When you put a food into your body, it is partaking in all of those actions. Food is information to your body. Your body takes the food and interacts with it to modulate cellular signaling pathways, also influence your hormones, interact with your genes, change your gut microbiome, and increase or decrease cellular stress. Over the past 100 years, There's been a significant dietary change, mostly within the United States. There's been a 30% increase in daily calorie intake in the last 40 years. The use of added sugars and sweeteners has doubled. 
There's been a 40% increase in starch from refined grains and potato, a 300% increase in highly processed omega fats since 1990, and a lot of this has to do with the change in agriculture from family farms to industrial agriculture. When I was in sixth grade, my history teacher told us that literally any problem within the United States could be blamed on the Industrial Revolution, and the older I get, the more and more I agree with that. As America started industrializing, family farms weren't able to keep up, and industrial farming became the new norm. And now, we all have corn DNA in our hair because of this. Look that up if you don't know what I'm talking about. Many Americans suffer from a phenomenon called hidden hunger. This comes from eating foods with lots of calories but low micronutrient density, causing you to always have kind of a low-lying hunger. And this low micronutrient density causes metabolic disruptions because you need those micronutrients in order for your metabolic processes to function. And guess what the root cause of disease state is? Metabolic disruptions. The leading causes of death in the United States like heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and all of these are all stemming from metabolic disruptions. Meaning if Americans were to know how important diet is, we could avoid so much death. And don't get me wrong, I literally love donuts and cake and candy and gummy bears. But being able to take a second and think about how eating four handfuls of gummy bears is literally making my anxiety worse because of the nutrient disruptions and the gut microbiome disruptions that they're causing has honestly been pretty prolific in clearing up my gut and helping my anxiety. I know I've talked on this before, but 95% of your serotonin is made in the gut. Serotonin is a happy hormone. If your gut is all kinds of fudged up, it can't make serotonin or a whole host of other things effectively. And then you get depressed or you get anxious. And I don't know about you, but when I get depressed, I go to the grocery store and I buy a bag of Little Debbie powdered sugar donuts and a Red Baron frozen pizza and Pringles and I lay on the couch and I eat all of them in one sitting. How do you think that helps my depression? But if eating all that crap isn't going to actually make me feel better in the long run, what would? Well, as we all know, I can't give you medical advice. So, I can't say which diets you should and shouldn't do because I don't know your health history and nutrition is so individualized. But I can tell you that food is medicine. Hippocrates himself said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And diet is so much more than just the ability to eat healthy foods. I am the first to recognize that diet is governed by where you live, like food deserts. It's governed by finances. Organic and unprocessed foods are expensive and feeding a family is expensive. You also need time, energy, and skill to be able to cook. All things that aren't readily available in our modern world, unfortunately. Mental health also plays a huge role, as I just delineated by my Little Debbie and Red Baron depression dinners. When you feel like shit, you eat like shit. It's that easy. Nutrition is one of the hardest aspects of health to change, but it's literally the most important, which is so hard. Terry Walls, an American physician, was able to completely reverse her multiple sclerosis through diet, on a less impressive but personal level, I was able to completely reverse chronic diarrhea by addressing my food insensitivities. I removed my top three foods that were pissing off my gut, and solid turdies started leaving my body. The diet that we recommend to patients most frequently is the anti-inflammatory diet. Like when you have a headache and you pop some Advil or Aleve, those are anti-inflammatory medications. So as Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and allow food to decrease inflammation. When you stub your toe, it becomes swollen and red. Those are external signs of inflammation. 
but there's stuff going on inside that you can't see as well. Internal signs of inflammation happen with chronic inflammation, obviously, and all of the standard American diet foods cause inflammation within the body. That is not an understatement. All of the standard American diet foods cause inflammation within the body. Your immune system becomes activated when your body recognizes anything that is foreign, triggering inflammation. Intermittent bouts of inflammation, like eating three meals a day of inflammatory foods, builds on itself, causing chronic inflammation, which is linked to heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, depression, and Alzheimer's. Consistently choosing processed foods, and you're accelerating the inflammatory disease process, getting yourself faster to a disease state, so it's up to you, really. On the flip side, foods that are anti-inflammatory have been clinically studied to reduce the risk of chronic disease. Mediterranean diet is my favorite because it's absolutely delicious. This emphasizes healthy fat, plant-based foods, veggies, and whole grains. The fiber, healthy fats, and antioxidants are all combative in inflammation, and this is not a vegan or vegetarian diet. It just emphasizes healthy fats and whole foods. The DASH diet which is short for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension, is designed for people with high blood pressure, and it focuses on the same foods as the Mediterranean diet, while also limiting sodium to 2,300 milligrams a day. The MIND diet, which stands for Mediterranean Dash Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay, is a mashup of the two. It prioritizes brain-healthy foods, which also happen to fall into the anti-inflammatory category as well. Those are the three diets that are most commonly recommended in a naturopathic practice, but as I said before, diets are so individualized that it's important to speak with a professional to know what might be right for you. But I can promise you that once you get on an anti-inflammatory diet and regimen that is right for you, you will start feeling better physically, emotionally, and mentally in no time at all. I promise. Moving on to other lifestyle changes, back to the basics, sleep, exercise, and sunlight. Sleep is when our body recovers from everything that happened during the day. Nighttime problems are daytime problems. If you aren't sleeping adequately, your body can't function properly during the day. There's no way around that fact. Sleep is when we restore, rejuvenate, and rebuild all of the cells and all of the pathways that got broken down during the day. You need good quality sleep and you should be waking up feeling rested. Enough said. If you're not getting one or both of those, and I assume without the one, you're not getting the other, this is something to talk with a provider about. And trust me, Ambien is not the answer. We also all know that we need to exercise. Everyone knows it, but not everyone does it. I'm not going to go into how exercise leads to weight loss and increased muscle mass, meaning a stronger body and whatnot, because everybody knows it. And there are about four bajillion resources out there on that, so you can look that up on your own if you need more resources. There's also a bajillion resources on exercise and mental health, but that's what I'm going to touch on more because it's just as important, probably more important, but less well-known. Regular exercise relieves stress. It improves memory. It helps you sleep better, and it boosts your overall mood. It has been clinically studied to show a positive impact on depression, anxiety, and ADHD, and even modest amounts of exercise can make a profound difference. Studies have shown that exercise can treat mild to moderate depression as effectively as antidepressant medications, but without the side effects. A Harvard study showed that running for 15 minutes a day or walking for one hour reduces the risk of depression by 26%. 
And in addition to relieving depressive symptoms, maintaining an exercise schedule can prevent you from relapsing. How does it do this, you may be wondering. Well, just like nutrition, it all comes down to inflammation. Exercise reduces whole body chronic inflammation. It promotes neuron growth in your brain, and it releases endorphins, which are chemicals that live in your brain that literally energize your spirit and make you feel good. Also, exercise can be a perfect distraction to get you out of your head and break the cycle of negative thoughts that are associated with depression. In terms of trauma, studies have shown that really focusing on how your body feels while it's exercising can help your nervous system to become unstuck and move out of the immobilization stress response that is characteristic in those of us who have experienced trauma or have PTSD. On top of all of these things, exercise can also provide sharper memory and thinking, higher self-esteem, better sleep, more energy, a higher libido, and stronger resilience to emotional or mental challenges. And I'm pretty sure that like 99% of humans out there need a little bit of help with all of those things. You don't even have to devote a million hours a day to exercise. It can really just be 30 minutes of moderate exercise, five times a week, to reap some benefits. And if easier, those 30 minutes can be broken down into two 15-minute sessions or three 10-minute sessions. Honestly, whatever will get you and your body moving for some moderate exercise is the best option. And last but certainly not least, your interactions with nature really do matter. Sunlight. I remember when I was working a job a few years ago that started at 6.30 a.m. and ended at 5 p.m. and I worked in a basement, so no windows. In the winter months, I literally did not see the sun at all. And during that time, I was in one of the darkest emotional time periods of my life. Sunlight and fresh air do so much for our bodies as that's where we are originated. Sunlight improves your sleep as it's necessary in the production of melatonin and supplementing melatonin does not replace that. It reduces stress, and it keeps your bones strong, way stronger than milk ever will. That's a hoax. Sunlight keeps excessive weight off of your body, it strengthens your immune system, and it fights off depression, and it even can give you a longer life. All of these things sound like really boring-ass places to start, and especially if you can take a pill to make all of your problems go away, that's so much easier, and it's less work than fixing these things. But these things are always the root cause of a disease. And the way to prevent that is to get back to the basics and care for your body as it deserves to be treated. As cheesy as it sounds, your body has been through so much. It's been through trauma and heartbreak and extremely proud moments and pain and happiness. And it has held you through all of that shit. You can also hold your body and support it through all of the things. It's a two-way street and you both deserve it. Okay. That's all I have for you. This episode has been insanely long. Holy cannoli. Thanks for listening this far. Today's um, vagina rhyme is... Um, my vag is a pirate with a thick, coarse beard. Salty and tough, both respected and feared. As always, please rate and review the podcast and send me a message when you do it so that I can send you free swag. You can reach out to me on Instagram or TikTok at sassyspeculum or via email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. Or if you prefer to be anonymous, you can always message me on my website, www.beatinghardoula.com slash sassyspeculum. 
I love hearing your questions, comments, and suggestions for new episodes. As evident with these past two episodes, I will always talk on the topics that you guys want to hear. This one was recommended to me because otherwise I'm just talking to myself for no reason and I like to at least have a reason to be crazy. Thank you again for listening this far and to all of the other episodes. This is episode 13. That's so many and it's my lucky number. Okay, that's it. Bye!